Making a recipe that calls for butter? Make it better with European butter from France. With a minimum of 82% butter fat, it's no wonder French butter is the number one choice of chefs the world over. Whether you're whipping up an omelet, sauteing vegetables, or spreading it on toast, the rich, cultured flavor of butter from France always elevates. Be sure to look for Made in France on the label. And for recipes, tips, and tricks, go to tasteeurope.com. And then just in the way there's been so much conversation about revenge travel, how everyone is traveling because we weren't able to for so, for a few years, in the same way people are entertaining. This is Taste. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Chandra Ram is the Associate Editorial Director at Food & Wine and co-author of cookbooks, including Korean Barbecue and the Indian Instant Pot Cookbook. On this episode, Chandra takes us into the test kitchen at Food & Wine, and we hear about some of the cool stories she's been working on. We also talk about how post-war America and post-pandemic America share similarities in the way both events have changed the way we cook forever. It's really great catching up with Chandra, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Chandra Ram, welcome to This Is Taste. How are you? I am great. Thank you so much for having me. I love seeing your face in the studio. You're not always in New York. You're, you live in Chicago, but you are the Associate Editorial Director of Food at Food & Wine. Yes. And you're just kicking ass. I love Food & Wine. Ah, thank you so much. I mean, I think the whole team, collectively, we are working so hard and it's great to hear, like, we feel like we're we're kind of always pushing it. And always saying, like, okay, what can we do better? What, you know, what else can we do? How do, what do we add to the website today? What do we add to our events? What do we add to the print magazine that's just going to make it stand out and be super, super interesting? And then also, you know, it's food. Yeah. So it super should, fun. Inherently and delicious. should be fun. It shouldn't feel like work all the time. But clearly you're doing the work. Um, it's hard right now. Um, like everyone's learning to cook on TikTok. People are learning to cook on TikTok. We were laughing uh, the other day in a meeting because there was something about chaos cooking. And it was you open your refrigerator and you cook what's in there. And I'm like, friends, isn't that like basically a Tuesday? Like, yeah. are, like, what do you call it when you actually make a list and go to the grocery store? So, you know, it's like I think some of that just feels like someone did a great job of coming up with an idea and figured out how to give it a catchy name and record a video and say like, okay, it's chaos cooking. And, but it's also really interesting to see how people respond to that. Right. And to remember like one of the, one of the things that I try and remain laser focused on in anything that I'm doing professionally is the fact that I want people who are into food but don't know how to cook to be able to find an entry point. Yeah. And so I might think this is actually my favorite thing to do. Like, you know, you like 
go somewhere with a group of friends or family and the second to last day you've got all that random stuff in the refrigerator. And oh my God, like, yeah. You always have like a, a block of cheese. You have a few things in the crisper for vegetables and you obviously have protein in some way. It could be plant-based or what whatnot. And you're, it's always yeah. just sitting there. And then it's taunting you, have, you, right? Yeah, and you've got like a couple of lemons and yes. a quarter cup of sour cream for some reason. And you're just like, okay, so what do I do with this? And that to me is like... One of the really fun parts of a vacation is to figure that out. So yeah, like day six, day seven, what are you cooking? What are you? Yeah, what of? are you cooking? Yeah. And yeah. you know why? Why will nachos always work? <laughs> right? Always on vacation, vacation nachos. Shout vacation out. nachos, second to last day. The clean out the kit, <laughs> the fridge nachos. So that's the thing where it's like, okay, so someone just made a TikTok about cleaning out your fridge, but actually. As much as I'm like, I can't believe that's something someone is claiming is new or different. Yeah. It's like, that is really fun. Totally. And and I think the chaos cooking, I mean, you got to reference the Baron chaos menu. I mean, you're, you're from Chicago. We'll get to that conversation. But oh, that was like such a thread in the new season, this chaos menu and this like undefined. What does that mean? But let's talk about Chicago. You you live in Chicago. You're in New York a lot for for food and wine. But tell me about living in Chicago. Is there a food in Chicago that, you know, we don't really, as civilians, as, as outside observers, we don't really give the respect it deserves? You know, Chicago has such a fantastic dining scene. And I think that rightfully so, a lot of, you know, chefs like Jason Vincent and uh, Sarah Gruenberg and Christine Sikowski and Josh Culp and like they're getting attention. I think that there's so many interesting little pop ups and as they are in any city. Um, one thing that's really fascinating about Chicago is the impact of the sizable Polish population. Yeah. And so, you know, like friends come to Chicago because we have Korean Polish food. We have Dominican Polish yeah. hybrids. We have people who are sort of unafraid to just say like, hey, this is where I am. And I I love that. I'm I'm a third culture kid. Mm -hmm. I my parents are immigrants. My father was born and raised in India. My mother was born and raised in Ireland. They met when they lived in London, got married, started the family, moved to America, and then I grew up in Kentucky. Mm. So I, I did not know that. What part? In Lexington. Oh, right on. Cool. So Louisville, Lexington, like your great, great food cities. Great food cities, um, really wonderful like products and ingredients and cooking style. And yeah. um, so I will tend to like, I will lean into the commonalities between Indian food and, you know, if you're going to lump all of that in as one thing and Southern food, which similarly is, has all kinds of nuances and regionalities to it. So it's something when I see that in Chicago where someone is like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm Korean, but I'm living in this Polish neighborhood and I found these ingredients at the store and this is how I'm going to pull mm -hmm. all of that together. I love it. Yeah. I'm here for it all day. I love that that sentiment and, and, and highlighting Polish cuisine there is, is something that we haven't. I've had a lot of Chicago folks on the show and really special uh, community there. Mm -hmm. um, when you talk about Korean Polish, is there like a dish that blends the two cultures together that comes to mind? I mean, is it like a mandu, but with like 
Eastern like European. a pierogi mandu hybrid that nice. Juan Kim is doing. And um, it's also, it's it's just a lot of, you know, with, in Chicago, you're in a major city. You, much in the same way New York has Hudson Valley nearby yeah. and that produce. Like we have all these farms in Michigan, in downstate Illinois, in Indiana, in Wisconsin. There's fantastic cheese coming out of Wisconsin. There's amazing, wonderful, like, cherries and peaches and coming out of Michigan, apples. Yeah, shout to that, please. Thank you. Uh, Thank I you mean, for shouting out my home state. I, you know, I just honestly flew to New York so I could talk to you about Michigan. That's, <laughs> I know. That's why I'm yeah, here. Yeah, West Michigan Fruit Belt, Albert Barron's was on the show recently. We talked about that. I mean, I'm so excited. I don't mean to rub it in your face, but <laughs> am I going to be going to Grainer for a couple of dinners this fall? Oh, yes. Amazing. Yes. Uh, yeah, go to Grainer. Definitely worth the visit if you're visiting Chicago or even Detroit. You mentioned um, the mashup of Polish and Korean cuisine, and and you have a a really deep interest in Korean cuisine. You wrote a book with Bill Kim, Korean Barbecue. Yeah, That was cool. I I really like that book. Thank you. It stands the test of time. Many books don't. Talk about, let's talk about your cookbook writing career, because I also want to get into more of your journalism, but... What do you look for in projects when you're when you're linking up with a chef or writing your own cookbooks? You wrote a book about the Indian Instant Pot or the Instant Pot and how Indian flavors can be integrated into the um, formerly popular, possibly dead appliance. You know, I'm going to say the Instant Pot is still very popular. Um, I I know we don't know what's going to happen in terms of production in that, but yeah, it went bankrupt. Like the company literally, the company went bankrupt, went bankrupt and I I liken it to like the sort of like classic theory of the everlasting light bulb. Because if you make something and it just keeps working, <laughs> like I've purchased one Instant Pot. Yeah. And I have beat that thing up. I was, when I was working on that book, and I was also had a full-time job. I was the editor-in-chief of Plate Magazine. I would get up at 6 in the morning and cook something and work on the book for a couple of hours and then get ready and go to work. Mm -hmm. And uh, I and then I would come home and I would cook something else. And during the photo shoots uh, for the cookbook, I um, photographed this with Huge Galdonas, who's amazing. Oh, huge. Shout out. I love that. Love. Oh, get huge. huge on the show. I got. I saw him at the Beard Awards. I love that guy. Um, I will. Yeah, you need to talk to him. Yeah. I know he's going to be in Chicago in September because he's uh, because I was telling him he needed to come hang out for Best mm-hmm. New Chef party. Mm-hmm. But um, I I mean, my Instant Pot has cooked nine million meals <laughs> and it's still going. And so, and I think that, you know, the thing about the Instant Pot, like I, I live in an apartment, so I am not a gadget person. I, I, it takes a lot for me to commit to <laughs> add something to my cabinets because that means something's coming out or there's going to be like a daily Tetris game. <laughs> and the thing about the Instant Pot is that it does make it so simple to cook a lot of these recipes that, you know, I have these Indian cookbooks that my aunties have given me, that my mother had, and they all talk about using these stovetop pressure cookers. But it's an interesting thing that since my mother was Irish and not Indian, she didn't grow up using a stovetop pressure cooker. And she was like, "Uh uh-uh, I will sign on to a lot of things with this culture. My mother is an amazing (laughs) cook, cooked Indian food. We ate Indian food at least once a week when I was growing up. She, as an Irish lady, has one of the spiciest palates I know of. I don't understand why. Yeah. But 
she wasn't going to use a stovetop pressure cooker. But I was just like, oh, now I can do this. Now I can make all of these things. I can, uh, you know, I can use it to make yogurt. And yeah, I, I, love, lo- I love making yogurt in Instant Pot. That is a great call. We have it in Food IQ. I love that. Pressure cooker yogurt is great. It's so wonderful. And yeah. I kind of love it because I remember when I was a kid, when my parents moved to America, they couldn't find plain yogurt in a grocery store. It just wasn't around. And so my mother would have to make yogurt at home. Yeah, it was like Dannon vanilla in those little tiny like right. six ounce cups that back in the 90s and 80s. Everything was like a weird shade of pink, yeah, no matter what bizarre, flavor it was. Yeah, every berry possible. Um, <laughs> but I'm hearing that the Instant Pot is not dead. I love that. It was kind of a, a trash article when it was said like it was dying because I think that's like a kind of a lazy proposition. We know our world cooks with these gadgets in perpetuity. I mean, maybe not sous vide, but definitely like Instant Pot, like slow cooker to sort of call on the whole appliance dead so like you wrote you wrote this book that really uh unlocked a lot of the pressure cookers um benefits and you still feel like people are cooking your recipes from that book people are i mean because i'm still get i still get tagged all the time um i have a friend who's like okay the corn is coming in and now i'm going to be making like you know i'm going to be making this corn subsy and it's just that it's wonderful. That's actually one of the great, great things about a cookbook is that people have them and they keep them. And it's it's this thing that lives in their home yeah. separate from the recipes inside it. But then also it's like a reminder to them like, oh, wait, this kind of squash is coming in or yep. it's really cold and I want to make that alu gobi chowder. And it's so wonderful when people say like, oh, I made this and uh, this is part of, like, my family's regular rotation. I love it. It's so I, awesome. I'm going to link to that book in the show notes. Also, just to finish on Bill Kim, uh, Korean barbecue, what's your takeaway with, with writing a Korean cookbook with Bill Kim? One of the great things about that book is it gives you a fantastic insight into how a chef thinks because mm-hmm. Bill set it up with set with creating these sauces oh, I and spice blends. It is smart. And you make those and you throw them in your freezer and then you pull them out and say, okay, I'm going to need half a cup of this or two tablespoons of this. And then I can make this food in just minutes. And so it's wonderful in that respect. It's also when you're talking about like, what do I look for? I look for, if I'm writing with, with someone, I'm looking for someone with a story yeah, and who wants to be there and share that story. But and at the same time, I fully believe with any cookbook, you need to be able to drop the cookbook on the floor, have it open to some page and be able to just jump in and cook from it. Chandra, the drop test. The drop test. I love this. You've you've created this this idea that we think about. But now you're literally like throw it on the floor and and where do you end up? And can you cook from it? Right. I mean, Mm. Throw it on like a rug, so yeah, that on the a book rug. Isn't damaged. Yeah, you want to have a nice like pristine cover, unless you cook with it and you want splatters on it. But right, you don't want it to be right. dented. Don't break your books, friends. Don't break your books. But, um, but you should be able to open it up and yeah. just have like create a banger meal. Banger meal. Okay, we're gonna have the bear conversation. Uh, my dad grew up in Rogers Park. Many know who listened to the show. I love Chicago deeply. You love Chicago deeply. Um, are you it. into this show, Chandra? <sighs> I'm so into the show. I'm so, so into the show. And I wasn't, at first, it took me a few weeks to watch it because I was, you know, we're all used to these very, these movies and television shows that offer this sanitized, unreal idea of what a restaurant is like. 
and you, you know, and 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 it it's hard because you're like, no, that's not what it's like. That's not what it's like to be a line cook and walk in and you know see that the previous shift didn't clean up or someone raided all your mm-hmm. mise en place or you know, like, hey, the dishwasher called out, so you're also going to be doing that or, you know, any of the things or the moment that you make something for family meal and your chef is like, wow, that's really good. Let's play around with that and put it on the menu. Mm -hmm. And you're just like, oh, my gosh. So when I started watching The Bear, I I was sitting next to my husband, Jay, and I was just like, I kept hitting pause, and I was like, "This is so real. This is so yeah. real." Same, same, same. Uh, totally same experience. And then, and then I got to episode seven, season one. Yeah. Um, which I sat ramrod straight <laughs> on the sofa. I'm not sure I blinked or breathed mm-hmm. during that entire episode when the ticket machine just kept going and going and going, and everything was going wrong, and. It's just so – it took me straight back to my days as a line cook where you just have to put your head down and do the food and you cannot – you almost can't take in everything else that's happening. And then the thing about season two is I feel season one is very much about – it shares the very tough realities about working in a restaurant. And season two offers you insights into why people still do it. Yeah, exactly. And it's that joy. Oh my God, so agree. The motivation behind it and also just the actual training that goes into it versus like the X's and O's in front of you. Season one was all about like the that real like on the field, if you can use the metaphor of like a, a team sport, like the on the field X's and O's. And then season two is like the strategy, like building towards the season. So well said. And how much joy restaurant people find in creating hospitality for others. And that to me, like the episode in season two that had me unblinking and just barely breathing was Forks, in which Richie is learning why you want to actually take care of people. Why, when people come into your space, you are in charge of their birthday, their you know, time to reconnect with a friend or a partner. They're, you know, stressful. Maybe it's a work meeting or bringing families together or whatever it is. Maybe it's a breakup. Maybe it's a breakup. I I mean, we've all done that. Yeah, it's definitely part of restaurant going. It's all emotions. And a lot has been written about this show and how it taps into that. Yeah, I think they do a fantastic job. I um, I saw the cast a couple of months ago while they were filming season two. Um, I was eating at La Select in Chicago, and the cast came in, hmm. and I was chatting with um, uh, their former Kara, who was the GM at the restaurant at the time, and um, it was the night before Food & Wine was dropping our March issue cover, which is the chocolate cake from yeah. the bear. And I said, hey. And she was like, oh, I know these guys. I'll totally introduce you to them. And I was like, hi, I'm from Food & Wine. And here's the cover that comes out That's tomorrow. So and it's cool. your cake. Who who did you talk to? Um, they were, um, Maddie was there. Yeah. Um, AO was there. Like, there was like a whole group. Yeah, the whole so. crew. Speaking of the cast, you remember we were at the James Beard Awards in 2022. We're in the, like, media room. And Jeremy Allen White, like, walks in. This is, like, three weeks before the first episode appeared. And we were all literally, and we meaning me, was like snarking about the, who this kid from this guy from Shameless is on this like weird and I think it goes back to your point like most food 
restaurant shows have been so bad that you just can't take it seriously. And like, literally no one talked to him. Do you remember that? Like literally we were a room of journalists. No one talked to this guy. And I don't watch, I hadn't watched Shameless. So I was yeah, like, either. oh, okay, yeah. there's some guy here. Ooh. And now, of course, and that that was, um, wasn't that right before like the tornado almost hit? And there was a tornado. The, the entire power the, went out. The entirety <laughs> of chefs and restaurant people at the Beard Awards were like, are we going to be wiped out? Or are we going to be okay? That's actually very funny. That was a not funny, but curious uh, moment there. But I think the point was that like we didn't know what w- was about to hit like f- I know like us with the bear, and it has not stopped since. And it's over t- like two years ago. We had no idea how much and how much it was going to impact us. And I actually, when I was talking to the cast, I said, look, I just want to thank you. Yeah. I want to thank you for portraying what this really is and sharing this part of restaurant culture that most people don't get to see. And now to see after season two where it's it's just everywhere and so many people are just obsessed with the show and they people who aren't connected to the food world at all. And I'm like, yes. What's yes. your favorite cameo that Chicago has made the city of Chicago in the in the in the last couple seasons, the first two seasons? I really, really loved um this the episode in season one that opened with um Lynn Bramer, who um was who passed away uh in, within the last year and he is a morning show DJ in Chicago who had been doing it for decades and would just pull up to the microphone and yell, it's good to be alive. Mm. And I loved the fact that they had him narrate the opening sequence because it just felt so Chicago. It felt like, okay, you guys get us and you really – you really made an effort. Like, you understand the city. You understand that thousands of us for decades listened to this guy say, it's great to be alive every morning and, like, help, like, get you out of bed. Yeah. And then I really loved seeing Donnie Medea in season two. Really cool to see them, like, sitting down and actually in the in a real meeting, it looked like. I mean, they really—it yeah. looked like they had just dropped a camera in a real, like, meeting, front of house meeting or something. And I, I honestly, I, I look at the creation of the restaurant, the bear, and the show, and it reminds me of the early days of Blackbird, mm-hmm. because there are some, there are a certain number of commonalities in terms of getting the space together and figuring out how to get drywall and not having money and not having yep. money, and then going to a cousin. And getting, okay, we're going to get 20000 from this person and we're going to try and put it together because you look at that group, one-off hospitality, and you see all of the talent and all of the polish. And I was a culinary school extern at Blackbird when it first opened mm. and remember when they had no money and we were struggling to, you know, get the stove working and put out service and people were just discovering this restaurant and just discovering, like, hey, this guy, Paul Kahn, is really talented. And now he's, like, you know, the godfather by all rights. Oh, my God. I got to go there as a kid or not a kid but a young, young youngster and, and experience that restaurant early days. And it was it was phenomenal for just to, to as a diner to experience it. 
Yeah, and to see like the impact that Avec, you know, which they yeah, really course. show off in the show, and PQM and Publican Quality Breads and Publican and all of that, and just to see everything that they've built. And to know that they honestly, everyone goes through some version of opening a restaurant in the bear in the, you know, when they're opening a restaurant in the real world. Let me ask you, this is totally an aside. Uh, is Schwa still open? I think about Schwa a little bit. I feel that restaurant, like, I feel like the bear channels a little bit of that energy too. It does. It does. Just in terms of like this really small crew yeah. and um, chaos menu, chaos like, yeah. writing menus like literal chaos. I mean, there's, I, you know, there's a there lot was of- a long time where you would you would finally figure out how to get a reservation at Schwa and show up and have no idea if the restaurant would would open that night. It feels the Bear Channel Schwa and like Coco and Chris Storr, I'm sure, knew and know about Schwa. And I have a friend who uh, the way he got a reservation at Schwa was literally leaving a bottle of probably either Black Maple Hill or some like nice boutique bourbon with a, with a note at the door. I mean, like... <laughs> Insanity. Like offerings. Like an offerings like to get a giving an offering. Like literally. <laughs> is it still open? I don't know if it... Uh, is that place still open? It is. No shit. I believe it is. Okay. I haven't been in a minute. Okay. Enough said. We <laughs> Enough said about that restaurant. Um, a transition here. Back to food and wine. And your recipe-driven work and what you do day after day. You, you're coming from a photo shoot. Just like literally to come to our studio and you're always shooting. You're always developing... Chandra, what has been the like the biggest code to crack recently, recently for for a recipe for you and your team? I think a lot of it is trying to hit the balance. Like food and wine is forty five years old, and that means that it's it's a long history of um, you know recipes and that. And then I've been there for a year and a half at this point, and I'm looking at it and saying, okay, but what have we missed? And it's it's tough because there's so many cuisines. There's cuisines upon cuisines in different cultures. And so a lot of it is trying to figure out how do we represent these cuisines? How do we make sure the recipes are created by people from those cultures who are also able to share their stories? Yeah. And also to say, like, how do you... How do you how do you share a complicated recipe in a way that is palatable to the reader, to someone? Because without compromising, without compromising, that's the, that's the trick, right? Because like yeah. you you want to make the reader cook this at home and enjoy it, but you also don't want to compromise and just like neuter the 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 tone and the voice and the spirit and the culture. Right. So it's recipes like. A um, we did. I worked with um, Chidi Kumar um, out of uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, on a recipe for this wonderful lamb biryani, and she was just like, "Look, if you can make a stew, if you could make any kind of like, if you, she's like, if you can cook Thanksgiving dinner, you can make a biryani." And so we talked about all the different ways that you can cook some of this in advance that you can um, actually get your family together and have like a group assembly line where you're you're layering everything into the biryani and that you that this can be something that is a shared experience and a shared meal 
Mm. And so we were laughing about the fact that, like, over the holidays, you know, like, after the big sort of uh, holiday meal in the next days, everyone's sort of hanging out. And people are still hanging out in the kitchen. You're like, okay, well, if you're hanging out, if you're going to, like, loiter here. Help me make birani. Help me make this. Yeah. And the same sort of thing, like, with cassoulet. Yep. With any of these dishes that are so wonderful and special, it's, you know, it's cracking the code of being true to the recipe, being true to the culture around it and the intentions, and also making sure that you don't feel like you had to, you have to be an expert chef yeah. to cook this. I love this response. I was like hoping maybe for like, a, yeah, we couldn't get the yeast rolls to fucking rise, but you you actually said, no, it's, said you know so what? much more than I really expected. I love it. I mean, everyone has a day when the rolls oh. won't rise, man. Oh my God. Yeah. And that's, that's definitely something that isn't said enough about, you know, you guys and BA and, and Epi and all the places that are developing their own recipes to put out there into the world, oftentimes for free. Is like it's a lot of work to create a recipe. It's a lot of work to create a recipe because I need everyone. I should say I want everyone to have this amazing experience, yeah. but I actually need it. Yeah. And maybe I need to untie so much of my <laughs> emotional uh, ties to the recipes. But I want everyone to be able to make something and say like, wow. At the very least, you just made one hour of my day better. I love that. That's great sentiment. Um, I was actually making dinner a few weeks ago, and I'm listening to the Splendid Table, which I do sometimes, and shouts to Francis and the team there. And you were on, you were, uh, it was at Aspen Food and Wine, and you were on a stage talking to Francis, and you said something that I was like, I stopped on, and I was like, oh my gosh, Chandra needs to come in and talk about this with our show. And it's the parallels between post-World War II America and the, the, the rapid changes in home cooking then and 2023. You've linked the two. Please share this again if you listen to it and Splendid. Hey, you should listen to it again. It's really important to hear. It's, it's complicated. So it, what is to say is that we're all still grappling with what, what happened a couple of years ago and is still happening and, you know, lingering in, in a lot of ways. This pandemic. This pandemic. This thing that completely shut down the world. And the last time something like that happened in a very short amount of time was World War II. And prior to World War II, America was—the way we ate was very different. It was—there were convenient foods available, but they were very expensive. They were difficult to access. And so much of it was dependent upon farming. And then you have the situation during World War II when so many men were away, you know, fighting in the war, serving in whatever capacity. Women, by huge, huge numbers, were suddenly working outside the home. They were earning money that they couldn't necessarily spend because uh, products were so limited and that. But suddenly— they were gone for eight to 10 hours of a day and still needed to create meals. Meanwhile, industrialization is ramping up, in, spurred by the war effort. Uh, and so convenience foods became part of that. And so you have, you have a society full of people who come out of this shared, horrific global experience, and suddenly their roles have changed. 
Absolutely. I mean, women because are working at banks. They're working as executives in advertising. There were, I mean, so many fields that men dominated, they were working during these five years, six years. Right. And it's so interesting because after the war, there was a big cultural push to get women to quit their jobs and go back into the kitchens. Can you imagine? And wow. they were, and, you know, media was part of it. It was very much considered patriotic to um, buy a house in the suburbs, and this is where the money that a lot of these women earned while working during the war um, and had in banks was, you know, they were encouraged to, with their spouses, buy homes in the suburbs um, where there were not restaurants. Um, and cook every meal. And you see this in the books at that era. The the books are crazy. They're so complicated. They're so complicated. Yeah. They're so um, nitpicky about presentation and all of this, but it was it was an effort to get women to essentially do a 180 on what they had just experienced, where during the war they had less time to cook. Now it's like, okay, actually, you need to quit your job. You have a role, and it's to make so, this, like, thing floating in aspic or, like, just some kind of, like, very, like, layered sauce that's, like, French Nouvelle. Right, yeah. right. And so now I look at where we are in our culture and the fact that, we just spent a few years at home. And many of us are still, you know, working some or all of the time from home. And but our collective, um, our patience as a society has shortened. We 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 have a need for immediacy in a lot of ways that um, has only been heightened in the last few years. And. We're also coming out of this very much trained on um, getting a lot of flavor and a big impact flavor-wise immediately. Mm. And so that's where I think ingredients like, you know, chili crisp is something that I can't see. People talk about it being a trend, and I'm like, friends, I think this is here to stay because, you know, you get you can open up a jar of chili crisp or salsa matcha or oh yeah, Love you know, both those and, and James yuzu Park. kosho or something. Big call on those. All those are great. Yeah. Huge impact of flavor. James E. Park and um, and and Jin Gao are both releasing books this this fall revolving around chili crisp. So right. publishing is caught up to it. So just drawing it back, this parallel, this like m rapid, massive change, abrupt change happens. Um, our lives change forever. We're in the, we're in our home kitchens now where we're, we need immediacy. We crave, we, our patience has been tested. So in terms of recipe development at Food & Wine, how do you write recipes for this post-pandemic era? What we're looking at is how do we, how do we hit you in all of your moods, essentially. So do well I, said. I love that. How do I get you when, I mean, right now we're, we're chatting. It's, it's hot. It's humid. I'm like, okay, we've done the work already to make sure that we have a lot of really beautiful salads. We have a lot of things that are simple but have a small little extra added to them, whether it's an ingredient mixed into the dressing, it's an added element of texture, it's some little note to um, just take it over the top. Yeah. And so we want that. And then just in the way there's been so much conversation about revenge travel, how everyone is traveling because we weren't able to for so, for a few years. Um, 
in the same way people are entertaining. Yeah, revenge entertaining. Revenge great. entertaining. I love that. The and revenge I, Thanksgiving. <laughs> or revenge cookout or having like blowout bashes and, and getting that vacation home and, and getting all your friends together. Yeah. That, that will, that will, we will always crave that after being repressed for so long. Um, I ask a lot of journalists this question and I want to ask you this. Um, how can the grocery store be improved? Oh, I love this question. I would love to get rid of the international aisle. Yeah. Because ethnic food aisle. The ethnic, in, the, in, in the worst in the way worst, for framing it, too. We're doing heavy air quotes with yeah. our tone of voice. I would love to get rid of that aisle because the notion that this, this foot-long bit of territory on a single shelf is what you're going to get for Vietnam and— Perhaps even with the connotation that that's all you need for a single cuisine is so terrible. Um, I would love for grocery stores to be organized by cooking intention, perhaps. And so you're not having to walk around in circles trying to find, you know, your olive oil and your balsamic vinegar is in this section, but your um, any other, you know, sauces or vinegars or Mm -hmm. aromatics are going to be someplace else. So I would love to see more of a, I would, I would love for grocery stores to tear down all of that, that those sections and just start thinking, how do I cook? Mm -hmm. And where do I where do I want and need things to be? Why do chickpeas need to be separated from black beans? Yeah, insane. I, you're so right. Uh, the the organization doesn't is counterintuitive. We're just so programmed to it as a culture to like go, you know do those zigzags when we're shopping with our carts. Yeah. Do you go to Foxtrot at all? I know there's a lot in Chicago. I talk about Foxtrot a bit in the show with a lot of founders, and and it seems like a real really interesting opportunity um, to kind of kind of shake up. Um, it's not really a, a grocery store. It's more of like a fancy millennial bodega. But how do you feel about yeah. it? Yeah. I mean, it's like I think it's great when you need to, especially if you need to kind of run in and get something and you need – I love it for like the high-low of the like, oh, I need to get, you know, coconut milk and I also need to get some really fantastic cheeses. Yeah. That sort of thing. So I actually live very close to an independent grocery store in Chicago called Harvest Time. Mm. And it is so beloved that when people move out of the neighborhood, they're like, oh, but I'll be back because obviously I'll be going to Harvest Time. Oh, it's so cool to have that it's, local connection to a, a – and they merchandise it probably in a way that's exciting to you. They do. And it's, um, it's an independent grocery that um, – I think probably had its origins as a, you know, produce heavy bodega. And then they just keep growing and keep growing. And then suddenly it's like, oh, the peaches are from Michigan and the cherries are from Michigan. And wow, suddenly there's four different types of cauliflower. And there's, oh, we just rearranged things because we added like a, you know, we expanded our tofu section. And it's so, so fantastic. Yeah. And, and I'm sure there's a market for that. I mean, they're, they're busy. Oh, People I mean, yeah. and if I'm working on a cookbook or recipe yeah. development for food and wine, I can be there three times in a yeah, day. You're giving them some money. Sometimes I burn things. <laughs> Chandra, on This Is Taste, we ask guests about their discerning taste. So to close this interview, here's a little rapid fire, fast and furious taste check for you. Are you ready? I am ready. The first thing you do when you visit New York City. Food related. 
Nine times out of ten, it's a white Negroni at Dante. Oh, well said. The best AM pastry with coffee. I drink coffee with half and half and sugar, so I need something salty. So um, there's a place in Chicago, Loaf Lounge, where Ben, the chef, makes a really fantastic savory croissant with ham and cheese and everything, bagel seasoning, mm. and it's like with a sweet coffee. Oh, yeah. Uh, That's the, that is, I love sweet, love sweet it. savory. The best dessert, hands down. Best dessert is at Avec. They do, you can get just like a single house-made kind of nutter butter, like amazing pastry chef wow. making you a nutter butter. And after eating way too much food, you just like, I, I always want dessert, but I always want, here's my thing. I always want half of a cocktail and I want half of a dessert. <laughs> so I do like half of a gin and tonic first and then, or if someone will pour me a mini gin and tonic, yeah, that's they will the forever get have my gratitude. When you can do a mini, that's the best for the start. And yeah. you want to do a little, is peanut butter just like, is that a is I that love a peanut butter, yeah. man. And I, I, I like, I don't, eat, I don't eat fancy peanut butter. No. You Although the, the Avec Nutter Butter is probably made with fancy peanut probably. butter, but otherwise I'm like, oh, is that a jar of Skippy? I'm oh, yeah, saying. definitely. I'm Here more deep guy myself. Or I actually, you know, I like Wegmans. Wegmans is creamy. Oh. That's my number one industrial peanut butter. Okay. The most underrated piece of kitchen equipment. I underrated piece of kitchen equipment. You know what? It's a bench scraper. Oh, yeah. A bench scraper. For everything. It's not just for pastry. It's for not just for not just for pastry. It will help you scoop up your chopped onions to get them into the pan. It will help you. I use it to clean my counters yep. at the end. Um, use it every day. Yeah. Put the bench scraper on your counter and leave it there. That's that's like yeah. it, you'll see yourself using it for lots of stuff. I fully agree. Okay. The most overrated piece of kitchen equipment. I might get some hate mail on this, but friends, you don't need an immersion circulator. <laughs> Friends, I, you don't. This is the second shade for sous vide in this in this conversation. I, uh, I I was just about to say like maybe I was a little tough on sous vide, but yeah, merge circulator sous vide. You open the door for me to just be like someone was like, oh, what can I do with this? And I'm like, you can get rid of it. Yeah, is what you can do with it. Somebody sorry wrote about baby food is I guess really it's like a really good use baby food, but. Someone told me that. Maybe it was Maggie Hoffman. Maybe it was. I don't know. Was okay. Somebody, if Maggie said it, then. Uh, I think it was you know. Maggie. It was somebody was like, it's great for baby food. So. Okay. I'll accept. We're being a little optimistic here with the, with the sous vide. Okay. Your favorite grocery store chain national U.S. category. I'm going to say Patel Brothers. Oh, man. I live exactly eight minutes from the OG Patel Brothers in Chicago. The OG's in Chicago? It's in Chicago on Devon. Yeah. And it is, they just redid it. And I was a little bit like, you guys don't need to redo it. It's totally old and beat up and kind of crowded. And I love it. But they redid it. It's lovely. Um, you can find so, so much mm -hmm. at a Patel Brothers. Yeah. Amazing produce. Um, you know, like, no matter where and when you are, if you are in the mood for a pomegranate, Patel Brothers has it. Yeah, like they have li everything. Listener, um, hit pause, go to Google Maps, put Patel Brothers in, map it. If it's under 30 minutes, please put it on your like travel list. Do it. Do it. Because you will, 
it's, you know, it's the opposite of what we were just talking about. The worst thing in a mainstream grocery store is that cramped international ethnic food aisle. And Patel Brothers is here to show you that it is so much bigger and broader. And that and it's also a wonderful way to see the commonality yeah. between um, spices and nuts and legumes and rice that are used in cuisines across the world. What single dish is required for every Thanksgiving table? I think you have to have stuffing. Honestly, sometimes I host Thanksgiving and sometimes I'm just the day of, the day before, I'm like, man, you know what I'm excited about? I'm excited that I'm making cornbread sausage stuffing. Okay, that's your that's your combo? Cornbread that's my, sausage. Yeah, that's my combo. Yeah. Um, sometimes with uh, some apples and pecans, sometimes, you know, we'll see how it goes. And then the next morning, I I heat up the cornbread sausage stuffing, and I put a fried egg on top. Oh, yeah. And then I have a little sliver of, peca- of uh, pumpkin pie, and it's the best. There's your sweet savory right there. There's genre. my sweet savory, babe. You're, you're, on, you're on message there. Okay, what, what single dish should be avoided at Thanksgiving? There's got to be one. You know, I think the thing with Thanksgiving is everyone, it's so tied to tradition and all of that. Sweet potato is not part of, not something I grew up with. And so while I love sweet potatoes in most situations, I think that if you've got, I think you need to choose your, you know, mashed Yukon gold or russet potatoes or the mashed sweet. I don't, I think the Thanksgiving plate has such a limited amount of space. You really have to choose your soldiers there. Diplomatic. Diplomatic. Well said. Not going to yuck on anyone's yum no. if that's if that's what it is for you. That's what it is. And I wasn't looking for that. You know, I love that you just did not you did not follow the assignment and and, and for better for better for this interview. Thank you okay. for thank you for not for not yucking <laughs> on a yum. Okay, this is I sent you this in advance. So you probably thought about it. Your favorite cookbook of all time. I mean, how am I going to face my shelves after answering this? I have to say. Um, Andrew Zimmerman, who's a Chicago chef of um, he has sepia and proxy restaurants, was one of the first chefs to say to me, the first 75 pages of the Zuni cookbook are absolutely required reading for anyone who is serious about being a cook. And I I always go back to that book because it is so beautifully written. Judy Rogers was amazing. R.I.P. Yeah. I mean too soon and and you know really food media was just picking up when she passed I feel in many ways. It was it was evolving and changing so much. I got to revisit the Zuni chicken for food and wine a few months ago and we made it over and over again and we also talked um Hunter Lewis and the team in the test kitchen and I were talking about how we all thought we were making the Zuni chicken, <laughs> but we were making it in different ways. That's such a smart story. It just it like evolves. Like the way to frame it that way. Um, and it's something that as you make something over and over again, sometimes you may not even think about the fact that you're going to you're going to sub in this. You're going to cook it a little bit longer because you love those kind of really crispy, slightly charred edges. You're going uh, exactly. to evolve it to your palate. Exactly. Like I always make the the bread croutons in the Zuni chicken crunchy and crispy. In the book, they are not. And I had had been cooking my version of the Zuni chicken and personalizing it without even thinking about it. 
but it's such an interesting, it's such an iconic recipe. And I loved being able to revisit it and show so much appreciation for her. I got to interview her before she passed and I found my notes from the interview and from many years ago. And I was just like, my gosh, like this woman just talking about chicken and talking yeah. about how all of that happened. Um, it was amazing. I can't wait to, I'm going to link to that, that article in the show notes. Oh, thank yeah, you. I love thank that. you. Thank you. Final question. Favorite sandwich of all time. It's gotta be one. I mean, a BLT. A BLT in the summer when tomatoes are just hitting it at like this perfect, perfect level. And then you get a uh, crispy bacon and you get a bread that's sturdy enough to hold everything together. Um, I love getting, if I'm if I'm feeling a little extra, I'm, I might do some kind of crunchy lettuce, like a romaine or um, even an iceberg, and then layer in yeah. some arugula for a little peppery. Love a layer of mayo in there. There's Evan. no wrong answer for that question, but there is a right answer, and you just gave the right answer. Oh, great. <laughs> Chandaram, thank you for joining This Is Taste. Thank you so much for having me. This is Taste is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening.